Hi, and welcome to Journey Through Scripture, Day 34. Today, we're looking at Job 30 through 32 and Matthew 22, 15 through 46. Okay, Job 30 through 32. This uh, continues the speech of Job. And if you recall from yesterday, um, chapter 29 was Job reflecting on what life was like before all this went down and um, the, all, all the good that he did and the way in which he blessed others. And then 30 begins with, but now. So this is very much a that was then, but this is now. And now, in essence, if you look to say verses 1 through 18, I am a song and a byword to the lowest of the land. Uh, he even basically says to those whom I wouldn't even have put with my dogs. Uh, a bit condescending, but I think we get the point. Um, God has cast me into the mire, Job argues, and he will not answer me. I don't even know what I've done or what I'm supposed to do. All that is left for me now is to die. And uh, you see that in, say, verses 19 through 23. Um, then he continues to talk about how in the past uh, he was good for those who, to, to those who were, who were needy. Um, verses 24 through 25, does does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hands in his disaster cry for help? Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Um, but when I hoped for good, verse 26, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. Um, now there's none to help me, he ends off chapter 30 by saying, and um, I'm just wasting away to nothing. Then back to chapter 31, the ways in which things were. And this is essentially a discourse on his own righteousness, the things that he, that he did that are kind of evidence of his, of, of his uprightness before God. And um, this chapter is kind of useful because it, it does point out a lot of things that characterize a good and godly person. And so I do think we can take some moral instruction from this. So he begins with this famous, um, this famous statement um, that you probably heard before. I, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Um, you know, he's he's careful at at not looking at at women inappropriately, um, and all of these things uh, that he has done. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit. If uh, verse that's verse five, uh, verse nine. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, uh, verse thirteen. If I have rejected the cause of my maidservant or manservant, um, verse sixteen. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, um, verse nineteen. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or needy without covering. Um, verse 24. If I have made gold my trust or called my, find gold my confidence. Verse 29. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him. Um, 
that's an interesting one, right? In in light of uh, Jesus's command to love their enemies, I, I, your your enemies, um, I, I think that this is an idea that we even find um, that we even find acknowledged as noble and good here in the Old Testament. Um, and there's a lot of these sayings in here. I'm just kind of selecting the more prominent ones. Uh, finally, verse 38: If my li- if my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together. If I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. So all these things that Job is, again, seeking to um, to show the ways in which he's he's been a good man. And then at, there at the end of the chapter, the words of Job are ended. So we're not going to get any more speeches from Job. We will hear from him. Uh, towards the end of the book, but um, which we're close to, but uh, these are this is the end of the main discourses between Job and his three friends. But then in chapter thirty-two, another steps in, another man named Elihu, the son of Barche the Buzite, and um, he initially appears. He this is a younger guy. Um, he's portrayed the others are portrayed as kind of these old men and then here's another one who also knows all of them but is young and uh, he comes in his initial appearance he's he's angry he burns with anger um he's angry at job because job has justified himself rather than god according to elihu uh which i think is fair estimation for a good number of things that job has said and his friends because they found no answer they didn't. They didn't really know how to address Job where he was at, and so his his contention with them is, "Where is wisdom among you?" It's said that wisdom is with the old, but um, now listen to me, and you'll see that wisdom is actually with me, the young. That's how messed up this whole situation is. Um, he's been waiting to talk, and now that they're done, he's ready um, to show them, um, and he promises to do so. Uh, without partiality or flattery. Um, and uh, then, uh, so then tomorrow we will see the substance of Elihu's response to these guys and how that holds up as well. Okay, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 46. Give me a second to turn there. Okay, Matthew 22, 15 through 46. Jesus, uh, in the vicinity of Jerusalem, recall, is approached is approached by Pharisees who are who who have uh, who have already resolved to to arrest him and possibly to kill him, and uh, they're looking to entangle him, find a reason for offense, and so they come to him with a question, uh, first trying to flatter him, right, um, and they come with with a number of individuals who are called Herodians, so these are. They're, they're with politically influential individuals. So they're, they're trying to get Jesus in trouble with the higher-ups, and they come with him with this question, uh, again, first, first with the word of flattery, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And then they give him this question, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And... Essentially, they're trying to put him between a rock and a hard place because if he says yes to this, then um, oh, then he's going to anger the Jewish sentiment of the day, 
uh, this 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 feeling that is very popular that the Romans are their oppressors, and so why should a rabbi be kind of endorsing them, endorsing our obeisance to Caesar, our obeisance to the emperor? Um, but if he says no, of course, then he'll get in trouble with the authorities. And so they're trying to turn either the, the more zealous among the Jewish people against him, or they're trying to turn the authorities against him. And they think they've got the perfect way to do this. And uh, Jesus calls them out and says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? And he says, show me the, the, to- the coin for the tax. And so they bring him a denarius, uh, which is a wage, uh, like a day's wage for a labor, and this would suffice for the tax. And Jesus asks them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Which, first of all, is, is already kind of a call out on them, because uh, this is a little bit into the background here, but recall that the Jewish people of Jesus' day felt very strong about the law. They cared very much about the law of Moses, and the second commandment is a commandment against graven images. And um, the understanding at this time was that that included images of people and things like that, that generally like like representations of people uh, and animals and things like that were, were violations of the first commandment. And this is, um, this is the tendency towards what's called an iconism in Judaism against images. And it's not to say that that's an appropriate application of that law any more than not picking grain on the Sabbath is an accurate representation of the law of, um, of the Sabbath, but this was indeed a common belief among the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Here come the Pharisees, and they produce a coin, and the coin's got an image on it, a likeness. And what's significant about that is that because of uh, the Jewish opposition to images— uh, the the Romans made concessions for them, uh, and there are other concessions as well, such as not being able to part, not not having to participate in sacrifices and things like that, in order to keep the the Jewish population in line and not offend Jewish sensibilities to the point where it would become a political problem for them, and so they actually minted coins special to Judea that did not have what would have been considered graven images on them. But here, the Pharisees are carrying one of these more valuable Roman coins uh, with the inscription of Caesar on it. And um, at any rate, Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And this, you could talk a, a little bit back and forth about what exactly Jesus's point is here. Um, so, for example, one might say that um, we're to latch on to this word likeness here, uh, that the, the coin bears the image of Caesar, and let's give it to the one to whom it belongs— but we bear the image and likeness of God, so give yourself to God. Um, that's definitely um, that's definitely 
probable, uh, like a, or a possible at least meaning to what Jesus is saying here. Uh, but there's much simpler explanations as well, and, and that is that Caesar is the one who has dominion here on earth, of course, God-given dominion, and a, a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven acknowledges that and pays what is due as long as it is not against God's law. Okay, I think of Paul's stance on taxes in the book of Romans. Um, and basically, he says, pay it, right? And, and whereas there's a distinction between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and uh, give God the things that are God's, and that is much more. Um, and so the idea here might be that there's this balance that a citizen of the kingdom of God has, this ability to not conflate the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of God, whether it be for, for because you like the kingdoms of, of man or because you don't, um, and understanding that we have an obligation to both but that when we're comparing what belongs to Caesars and what belongs to God, all Caesar has is what is here, whereas God is the Lord of everything, and everything is his. So um, Jesus, again, I think a lot of Jesus' teaching yields itself to, to kind of mulling over and thinking, and thinking about what exactly is it that he's saying. It's one of the purposes of parables, right? It's that things should not be so, things are not so blatantly obvious. You have to think about it, and in thinking about it, the thinking is itself a lesson, and I think that's true of this passage. So then he's approached again, and this time by Sadducees. Um, Now, the Sadducees are distinct from the Pharisees. I I have uh, noted, and just for review, the Pharisees in the in whom we encounter in the New Testament is essentially a lay movement. Um, th- these people who have perceived this deep problem that remained between the Jewish people and God, and their answer essentially was, "Well, we're not living lives that are pure enough," and so the Pharisees live under essentially priestly standards of purity and expect everyone else to do. They take it upon themselves to to police others. Sadducees are more connected to the religious power establishment in Jerusalem. These are guys who uh, hold the high priesthood, and um, and now their their belief, the belief of Sadducees, is is significantly different than the belief of a lot of other Jews of their age, and it's essentially a much more earthy religion. So there's things like they they tend not to believe in things like and and Matthew tells us of this that they they tend not believe in things like angels and things like uh, the resurrection that there will be a future resurrection everything else everything that's really significant about this the the, the life lived before God is happening here and now and um, the idea of things going on spiritually is not part of their uh, part of their worldview part of how they're 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 thinking about the world so um they come to him and they uh think they've got a zinger for him where there's this guy who has a, a wife and he dies and then she is taken in by his brother and he dies and then so she's taken in by another brother and he dies and what's going on here is that there's a principle that we will read at when in the book of Leviticus, um, uh, called leveret marriage, and 
Uh, it's a little hard for us to ga- grasp how this was viewed by a good thing and a good thing by by women to boot. But um, ascend- in fact, in fact, the thing that the Bible deals with are are men who are unwilling to participate in this. Uh, of course, the men likely have more of a say in these matters, so that can't be taken as definitive that all women were super gung ho about this. But it is a different worldview, in essence, than we tend to have today, and that is that they cared very deeply about whether or not people had offspring, whether or not they they had family, and whether or not they would be able to uh, pass on the name to future generations. And uh, and uh, the, apparently, from what we could tell, there's a lot of delight in this than the ability to do that. That's why barrenness in the scriptures is such a challenge um, that it denigrates, like a person's kind of lost in society if they're unable to have kids. And this isn't viewed as an inherently good or godly thing. Okay, This can become very much an idol, just like families can become idols today. But um, nevertheless, uh, this was exceedingly important and important to the extent where it was a common practice that if if a man died who did not have children, uh, it would be his brother's responsibility to, quote-unquote, go into their uh, sister-in-law and produce, and give her children by them. And again, this is a vastly different world than our own, and uh, the point here is not to judge that practice. The point here is that they're presupposing that practice. And um, and really, this outlandish scenario that that basically all these brothers die, they keep dying, and, and so she keeps um, being married to being taken into the household of, of these brothers. And so when they all die, and in the resurrection, this resurrection which the Sadducees do not think is a real thing— um, Whose wife is she going to be? And they think that this, that finding this kind of inconsistency, that they've found basically a, a mic drop moment against the resurrection, and um, and it isn't that Jesus has so transparently endorsed the resurrection at the end of the age. I should probably say just a second a word about what that means. So the resurrection is uh, a part of this hope that's woven into the fabric of the Bible that becomes more and more pronounced the further you go into the Bible. It's it's not that evident, or it's it's hardly in view at all, one might argue, uh, early on, but then when one starts, like the end of the book of Isaiah, certain things that are said in Daniel, um, you do have mention of a resurrection, uh, that the idea that God will, at the end of the age, physically raise those who are who are his, his people, and um, and uh, also that those who are wicked will be raised for judgment, that there will be this kind of final reckoning. Uh, but the point here that's distinct from how a lot of Christians will sometimes think about this even today is that this is physical. This is not you're going to go and live in heaven as a disembodied spirit. This is, no, your spirit will be reunited with your body and... Um, Perhaps it never left, depending on one's understanding of the constitution of man and things like that. But, um, but that it will be physical, and indeed, this does um, this does tie into the Christian hope, 
which is also a physical resurrection. We will see that more as we move through the New Testament, especially through Paul's theology, um, but uh, that's that's for another day. Um, the point here is that the Sadducees object to this, and they they want Jesus to um, to chime in on this thing. And and it's not so much that Jesus has been going around so much teaching and affirming the physical resurrection of the future. I I don't think they're trying to challenge his teaching. I think they're trying to 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 see okay, you're a rabbi, and here's a debate between those of the Sadducees and those of the kind of everybody else, but especially the Pharisees. What do you think about this? Uh, are you on board with this, uh, this, this, this mic drop zinger that we have? And Jesus basically repudiates the Pharisaic, the Sadduce- Sadducean view here and says, that they're wrong because they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And so his critique is basically going to be like, how small is your God? Um, He says, first of all, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, which is very interesting because here you have this good and godly institution of marriage and Jesus saying that in the resurrection, this world will be so new and so profound that even those relationships will be dissolved in favor of something greater. Um, it's not to say that we're not to, to love our spouses or anything like that. That doesn't detract from marriage. It just um, puts the greatness of the resurrection that God will one day do, this thing he will one day do for his people, it just puts that on a whole new level. It's... it's um, it's quite extraordinary. Um, but then his his scriptural answer is, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And this is what Moses, what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And um, it this is a little bit of a tricky one, because in the Hebrew language, there is no to be verb, okay? So it's easy for us reading this to think that what he means is, look at the present tense of the verb, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the idea, the implication then allegedly would be that um, you're not that if if you could call yourself, if God can call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hundreds of years after they died and the scripture is still true today, and it's thousand years after they died, they're, maybe they're not really dead, um, because he doesn't say, I was the God of these guys who are now gone and gone for good. Um, that The thing that makes that implausible, as I've said, is that, that he, the Hebrew passage that he's referring to, there's no Hebrew verb to be in that verse, uh, to indicate uh, am versus was. That's not to say that you can't communicate that concept at all in Hebrew, but it's definitely not there in Exodus 3, what God's saying. It seems more likely that what he's saying is, is a simpler argument than that. It's not like, let's look at grammar or anything. It's it's just simply the idea that, do you think that all of the blessing that is to accrue to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of their fidelity to my covenant, do you think that they saw all of that, that 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 is all that God has for them, that all God has for Abraham is to see, 
his son Isaac born and then to die and be buried in the cave of Machpelah? Um, probably not. And the so I tend to think, and there's disagreement on this, some would definitely cling to the tense interpretation of this, um, but it seems there here that that God is making, that, that Jesus is making a, another statement about the power of God um, to bless those whom he's brought into covenant with himself and to give them more than even they received in this life. And um, they're astonished at his teaching, they're taken aback by this, and conversation is over. Then we come to the last parts of this chapter, where Jesus makes uh, some some two more very interesting statements. So first of all, um, <clears throat> the Pharisees come to him and they send a lawyer who's going to be an expert on the law. This is not a lawyer as we might think of it, but this is this is a legal, a Jewish legal expert, and and they want to question him again. Try and, and these are all these are all being portrayed as tests of Jesus. What can we? What can we hang some kind of accusation against against him on? Um, and uh, they ask him, "What is the great greatest commandment in the law? Which is the great commandment, kind of the capstone of all the others?" And Jesus does give an answer, and he says he quotes Deuteronomy six five. He says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." This is the great and first commandment, and that's kind of what everything else hinges on. And there's multiple passages in the New Testament that affirm that this indeed is the heart of the law, this love of God. But then Jesus refuses to give the kind of answer they want, because they want one law. But Jesus says, there's another that's like it, and I'm not answering this question without mentioning it too, because you don't really... as uh, And that is... Interestingly, something that's said in the book of Leviticus, those of you who think Leviticus is unimportant, uh, Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second is like it. Loving your neighbor is like loving God. Um, As John will say, he who does not love his neighbor whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Actually, I think he says brother there, but you get the point. And um, it's on these two commandments that depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus elevates the the love of one's uh, neighbor um, to the in importance next to loving God. And the point is is that you cannot do one without the other. You're a hypocrite if you think you love God if you don't love your neighbor. And uh, you're also a hypocrite if you think you love God, but you uh, you love your neighbor, but you don't love God, you know, because loving your neighbor is bringing them to God and and modeling that love before them. And if if your acts of charity towards other people are devoid of that element, and I understand sometimes you have to get creative. Sometimes you're not always in a format where you can share explicitly the love of God. Uh, but but if there's if there isn't that in it, then there's a problem, and it's it's not ultimately uh, re- truly loving your neighbor. The final thing point that the final um, little uh, scuffle that they have here in chapter twenty two is also I think very interesting. So the Pharisees um, are gathered together, and Jesus decides to put a question to them, and he says. What do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah, the the son of David who is to come and reign over God's people? We've talked about this concept plenty. Whose son is the Christ? And of course, Jesus is talking about himself. And they say, well, he's the son of David. Um, 
And then, De- and then Jesus goes and he quotes Psalm 110. And Psalm 110, in case you don't know, is very important. It is the most quoted chapter from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, there are several things in it that New Testament authors will latch onto, but here Jesus latches onto the way the psalm begins. And he says, okay, so he's the son of David. Now, now keep in mind, in order to understand Jesus's question, realize that um, certainly in the first century, fathers are regarded as greater than sons, okay? And, and so um, you don't call uh, the, the one who's the boss around here is the one who bore you, your ancestor. You're lower than your ancestors. Uh, it's that kind of like, you know respect for, for the genealogical line like that, and especially if your ancestor is David, King David. And um, so he says, okay, well, if the... So for calling him the son of David, then through earthly wisdom, that would imply that the Christ is subordinate to King David. But then he says, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, calls the Christ Lord, uh, the Messiah, the future Messiah? And indeed, Psalm 110 does point to this this future hope of a Davidic ruler. Um, And uh, so, first of all, one thing I'd point out kind of in passing here is note how Jesus is regarding the scripture Right? He's regarding that this is David, and it's David speaking in the Spirit. So this is uh, an added uh, um, measure of authority. He's not simply regarding this as something that David just came up with, but David is actually speaking in or according to the Spirit of God. And um, how is it that, that David calls his, his distant uh, descendant Lord? Because if you read the beginning of Psalm 110, Pharisees, it does say, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. Now, uh, that's not a big deal if just some regular Joe wrote Psalm 110, right? Because it's easy to figure out, okay, well, my Lord is uh, the this future Davidic Messiah, and the Lord is speaking to him. Okay, no problem. The Lord said to my Lord, just, you know, but it everybody knows Psalm 110 was written by David himself. Okay, so, so, and David does not say, the Lord said to my descendant who is lower than me. No, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. He's calling his descendant the, the son of David, the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate one who's to reign over God's people, David is calling him Lord. So, and that's his point. He says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And, um, you know, challenging their view of, of, of the Messiah, of what is it about this Messiah that would make him greater than King David? And uh, no one is able to answer him. Uh, and from that day, it's, Matthew tells us, nor did anyone dare to ask him any more questions, because Jesus is apparently on another wavelength than they are. And um, he's, he's in the days to come, he will show them exactly what that means. So, okay, well, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. As always, I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Keep reading, keep enjoying God's word. And until then... Take care. Bye-bye.